If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case for both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn." If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, okay, so here we are again, and I want to I want to just sort of review real quickly and, and remember, kind of recall for you this structure that we put in place to help us as we walk through these kind of case laws. And we said that, you know, Jesus said, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. And under this, all the law hangs. So, so in our minds, we sort of built the structure. There's a branch that says, love God, and there's the branch that says, love neighbor. And, and through that, we sort of have this flow down. So we have underneath those commandments one through four, love God, commandments six, six through 10, love neighbors. Five, we said, sort of uh, goes between the two. And then underneath that, are the case laws for each of those. So it's, you know, think of it like an org chart, right? They've all got their sort of lines that take it all the way back to the top. And, uh, and today, I'll just tell you, we're in the love your neighbor section and we're under commandment number eight. And now we're getting case law dealing with commandment number eight, you shall not steal. It seems like a really straightforward thing, right? Don't steal what belongs to other people. What's interesting is how uh, that, that becomes a very complex issue once it intersects with real life. Right? Who owns what? When I was in law school, one of the very first classes you take as, as a law student is just what's called property law. And believe it or not, it's an entire year of trying to unpack the complexities that go along with who owns what, who has a right to claim ownership to this piece of property or that piece of property. There's some pretty famous cases. Um, I mean, just if I can talk you out of going to law school, it's basically you're reading cases 
hundreds of pages of cases on a daily basis, and uh, it's a real doozy, a lot of, a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> Uh, one of those cases in property law was a was a, a case called Post v. Pearson. It's from back in the 1800s, early 1800s. And uh, what happened is Mr. Pearson went out fox hunting and he cornered a fox and uh, Mr. Post stepped in and killed the fox and, uh, and then took it and, and possessed it. And so Mr. Pearson sued Mr. Uh, Post and basically said, hey, I have a right to that. And Mr. Pearson said, no, you don't. I, it's in my possession. So, so you, you, there's this argument over the carcass of a fox. Who wins? I'll let you look it up on the internet. Um, uh, it's just fascinating, riveting, right? But, but that's the idea. Like it's, it's one of those where, where, oh, I'd never thought of that. Or how about this one? There's one called United States v. Cosby, uh, not, not Bill Cosby, C-A-U-S-B-Y. And it was from 1945 where a U.S. bomber flew so low over a guy's property, he basically buzzed his chicken coop and killed 150 chickens. Well, well, the guy sued. Now, he didn't sue for the loss of the chickens. He sued based on an old doctrine in the law that basically says the man, the one who owns the soil, owns everything under the soil all the way up to the sky. What he sued was for trespassing. You actually came into my airspace. Who wins? You can look that one up too. So, so, so you, you get the idea that we, it's really easy. Don't steal seems really straightforward until it intersects with real life. And so what I want us to look at today is really understanding that underneath this is simply that rubric, love your neighbor. And I talked a lot about that last week. And so we're not going to delve into that as deeply today other than to say, remember where we are. Remember this structure as we go through this. Now, we're going to do what we did last week. We're going to sort of breeze through these 15 verses, not because they're not important, but because I want you to see the timeless principles that undergird them. Because I imagine most of us, we read this, we're like, what in the world? Like, how in the world does this apply, right? Well, I want us to see that, all right? So let's first understand what's being said. And this section, like last week, can be broken down into four sections. Okay, so it's all about property laws and, and who gets what, right? So it, the first part is just general thievery, stealing property. The next one is damaging property through negligence. The next one is safekeeping of property that's been entrusted to you. And the last one is borrowing property. And so let's just kind of, again, buzz through these really quickly and see what they say. So chapter 22, verse one says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep, kills it or sells it, he shall repay five for an ox for oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, pretty straightforward. You steal something, you destroy it, right? Whatever, uh, you have to pay back. But notice, it's not just compensating for the loss. There's actually what is known as punitive damages. That is, there's a punishment. Five oxen for an ox, four for sheep. Why? Because the ox was, I mean, this was the tool of the trade. This is, you had to have one of these and it took years to train an ox for you to be able to use it on your farm. I mean, think of a, a carpenter who gets all of his tools stolen out of his truck, right? You're, you're like, man, this is how I do business. Think
thing of intellectual property. I've worked years to try and, let's say, patent this idea, and somebody stole it away from me. I could have made, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars, something like that. That's the idea that if somebody just outright steals from you, you get compensation. Keep going. Let's actually skip down to verse 4. If the stolen beast is found alive and in his possession, whether it's an ox or a donkey or sheep, he should pay double. Okay, so... If you find it, right, it's not gone, it's not, it's not stolen or, or eaten or, or killed, you, you, it's, a, it's a double price for that. Okay, pretty, pretty straightforward. Now look at verses 2 and 3. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, uh, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So what the, what the law does here is it says if it's at night, and this, remember, we're, we're in the ancient Near Eastern world. There's no lights to flip on. It's not really quick to go over and light your lantern. You know, you, you, you don't know what's happening. The, and, and so the law is saying there's actually a presumption that what you were doing was self-defense. You have no idea why that guy was there, that gal was there. And so if you end up taking their life, it's going to be counted as self-defense and, and you're good. There's no, you're not liable for that. But look at verse 4. Uh, if, uh, I'm sorry, verse three, but if the stolen, uh, the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. So if the lights are on, right, if you can see, you know what's happening, then there, and you do kill him or her, right, because they're stealing your property and that's really plain, can't do that, right? It says uh, there, there shall be blood guilt and if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. So this is saying, hey, if you go back to the guy, if it turns out he can't pay back, then, then, uh, then he actually becomes a slave. There's no prisons, right? There's just, there, that, that, that wasn't known back then. So in some ways, this is a debtors, this is how debtors would pay off their debt. They would have to work it off in that sense, okay? Now, that's the, that's the, th- that, that, that's the stealing of property, just, just you know, outright thievery. The second section is the damaging of property. So look at verse five. A man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field. He shall make rest from the best in his field. Remember, remember this principle from last week. The, the, the punishment must fit the crime. It's that lex talionis, the law of the tooth. That is eye for eye, tooth for tooth, right? So, hey, if, if his beast roams on and eats all of your, then you, your beast can go back. He's got to give you the best of his, of his crops uh, for the same. A fire breaks out, verse 6, and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain of the standing grain of the field is consumed. He who started the fire shall make full restitution. What's the idea? here. You were negligent. What is negligence? It's saying you, you knew there was harm. There could be harm. You had a reasonable uh, understanding that, you know, a, a reasonable person will understand if they do this, it's going to result in damage to somebody else or to their property. Okay, that's negligence. And so this is what's saying. You can't just say, hey, I'm sorry, it was an accident. No, there has to be restitution in order to make that right with them, okay? That's how the law, the case law deals with damaging property. The third section is is a safekeeping property. So look at verse seven, okay? Here's the easy case. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe and it's stolen from the one who's keeping it, their house, then if a thief is found, he shall pay double. Okay, this, this is pretty, so... I say, here, here's my, uh, here's my wife's diamond earrings or something like that, right? And, and I'm going on a trip. Now, remember, there's no, um, 
There's no safe. There's no safe deposit boxes. There's nothing. They live in, they live in tents or mud huts or something like that, right? Very easy to break into. Okay, so I'm leaving. I'm entrusting you. Can you please take hold of these things while we're traveling so that they don't get lost or stolen or whatever? Yes, I'll, I'll watch over them. Well, you come back. I come back and you say to me, uh, your, your wife's earrings are gone. They got stolen, right? And, and we found the thief. Okay, we're back in the same position, all right? Uh, they they go back to verse one, really that same principle, or verse four, that same principle, they have to pay back uh, what was stolen double. But uh, keep keep going, Uh, verse seven, look at at verse eight. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether uh, or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property, okay? Here's my wife's diamond earrings. I go on a trip. I come back. You're like, hey, they're lost. They got stolen. You're like, well, but your wife has a really nice, beautiful pair of earrings. What just happened, right? Why are you, why why, why does she, and now there's suspicion. It's an unsolved crime. Okay, so what do you do? Verse eight says, you come near to God. That is, you go to the elders. This is where they are appointed as judges, if you will, to say, we're gonna hear out the case and figure out who's at fault here. Skip down to verse 10. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, okay, what happened? Uh, I, I gave you this for safekeeping and nobody saw what happened. It just sort of wandered off or now we can't find it. We don't know what happened. Okay, well, then an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property and the owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. In other words, I'm telling you, they got stolen. We don't know who the thief is. They wandered off. We have no idea where they are. I don't know. Let's go to the elders. We go to the elders. We make an oath. I, and you'll see this formula in scripture. May God do so to me and more if I don't blah, blah, blah. They, you'll hear this all the time. It's putting your hand on the Bible and saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I, I, I promise you before God that I did not steal your stuff. And you know what the Bible says? You know what, you know what Exodus 22 says? You have to take that oath. You have to be willing to say, I might, they're swearing before God. Ultimately, if they're lying to me, that's really a problem with God, not with me. And I've got to be willing to take it and walk away, okay? Keep going. But if it's stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. So if they find out it's stolen, then there's going to be, uh, if it's stolen from the one who's, who's in, in whose safekeeping it is, he has to make restitution, Interestingly, if it's torn by beast, verse 13, let him bring it as evidence he shall not make restitution for what has been torn. I have to make restitution for what's been stolen while it was in my custody. I don't for what is eaten by wild beasts. Now, why the distinction there? And the answer is, I honestly don't know. (laughs) I wish I could tell you. I think it has something to do with this. I think what may be happening here is is that there's this idea that you should have been able to stop somebody from stealing it. But perhaps if there is a beast that could tear your wild animal or tear your, your, your animal, your farm animal, then, then maybe you don't really have the ability to stop a wild beast and, 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 and can't, can't do anything about that, right? Maybe out of your sight or something like that. 
And so, so the law at least recognizes there are some circumstances where, where that doesn't have to happen. Like you bring it back as evidence, there's a torn beast, obviously I, I didn't chew on this thing, so uh, we're, we're, you know, there's no restitution that's owing, right? I think that's the idea. Now, the last section, verses 14 and 15, is about what do you do if you borrow stuff, okay? A man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner shall, uh, not being with it, he shall make full restitution, Okay, so, um, hey, Chris, can I borrow your truck to move? Yep, and you take it and you, you move and you come back and the two front lights are bashed out. Okay, well, I don't know how this happened. You do, you're responsible. Now, if you say to me, can I borrow your truck? I'm like, sure, in fact, I'll go with it. I'll drive the truck. We'll do this together and, and, and I'll help you move, right? Now I'm, I'm driving or I'm there. I see it. And, and if, I, if I return with two bashed uh, headlights, I can't look at you and say, hey, this wouldn't have happened if it weren't for me helping you move, right? So, so you, you, you owe me some compensation. The law says, uh, no, there's no compensation. Skip back. I, I skipped over it, but look back at verse nine. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or for a donkey, for sheep, for a cloak, for any kind of lost thing, which one says this is it, the case uh, of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. So I think this is sort of a general principle. Any kind of breach of trust. Uh, I, we, we are not on the same page and I'm thinking one thing about this piece of property and you are. So we can conceive of this, right? There might be, it's like, hey, I loaned that shovel to you. And you're like, no, you didn't. You gave it to me. It came with a bow or whatever. Like, like th- this was a gift, not a, a, a loan. I'm, no, it was, a, it was a loan, not a gift. And so we hash this out, right? And we go to the judges. They help determine. Here's the deal. They say, hey, if you're going to do that, then if, then if uh, whoever the judges decide, if you guys are going to bring this to the point of a lawsuit, whoever the judges decide is the guilty one who's not telling the truth, they're going to have to pay. Uh, I think part of this is just to keep people from making frivolous lawsuits and frivolous claims and, and saying stuff about property that isn't true, okay? So that's, that's the case law, right? And, it's, and, and fairly straightforward. We, we read all that and go, most of that makes perfect sense. And in fact, much of that is reflected even in our law. Now, so what? Um, what do we do with this? Well, listen, uh, the first thing we do, let, let, let's think about this. Paul, Paul in Romans, talking about the law, says the law, of, of which this is a part, is holy and righteous and good. And the reason he talks like that is not because, you know, rules on their own are good things. It's because the law is a reflection of the, of the law giver. It is that that it shows us something about the character and the nature of God. It's saying, here's what God values. Here's the kind of society that he wants his people to operate in. Here's here's his hope for the community of faith over which he rules, right? I, I want to see this sort of ethic in place. And so with that as a backdrop, then what do we learn? Well, certainly we learn that we're to love our neighbor, okay? And we talked about that last week, so I'm just gonna leave that there. That is a big principle. In fact, I'd say that's the major theme running through this whole thing. We're supposed to love our neighbor. We're not supposed to take advantage of them or steal from them, right? Be negligent toward them, okay? But, but, but what, do we, what do we see in this passage? Let me give you three things, new takeaways for today. The first thing I want you to see is this proclamation of relative 
values. Go back to verses two and three. Okay, remember, here's the breaking and entering. If, you're, it's, the, if it's nighttime, there's self-defense, but if it's daytime and you can see, then, uh, then, then the self-defense doesn't apply. Now, this really violates our gun-toting American sensibilities. This is my property, and you break in, I can blow you away. Doesn't matter if it's day or night. Here, here's what I want you to hear. I, I'm not saying this solves all of our property disputes in America. I'm saying what you're going to see here, when I talk about this proclamation of relative values, what you're going to see over and over and over again is that people are more important than non-people. Like last week we talked about animals, right? People are more important than animals. This week we say people are more important than property. And by the way, even bad people, even people with terrible motives, even people who want to take advantage of you, why? It's not that God loves crime, or that he thinks it's okay that somebody wants to steal your 4K Ultra TV from your living room. It's God saying, even that guy, even that gal is made in my image and they're not to just be snuffed out. They are more important. Listen, we could say this about a lot of things. People are more important than your stuff. People are more important than your animals. People are more important than your politics. People are more important than your stance on some current cultural issue. I'm not, I'm not saying we don't have disagreements. It's that the imago Dei, the image of God is stamped on all of these people. And we have to remember this. This is God saying there are relative, remember the whole crime must fit, the, the, the punishment fits the crime, the lex talionis, right? He's saying this would be unequal. Your TV, his life, the TV should, he, if, if that's what it takes, he can you can go to court over that. His life is not worth something in your home, okay? Now, again, I'm not pretending that thereby we've solved all the complex. If you want to email me, uh, I can delete it. But if you want to <laughs> email me and just say something like, yeah, well, what about, of course there's whatabouts, right? Please, please. Let's be more mature than that. Of course, there's what abouts. I'm just saying, as a general principle, we have to agree as Christians, people are more important than property. Always, always. All right, that's the first thing. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is just, I think it's a picture of repentance. Now, let me explain this. I think what we see here in verses 1 through 15 is really a good picture of what real repentance looks like, right? Real repentance, I mean, look, somebody can say, I'm sorry, and somebody can have all the right accompanying emotions. There's tears, and there seems to be sorrow, and there's a hanging of their head, or whatever. And we say, okay, that looks real. And then that happens to you again, and again, and again, and somebody's saying, I'm sorry, 20 times, 100 times, 500 times. Now, I know where some of your minds are going, because just a few weeks ago, we talked about the parable of the unforgiving servant. And some of you will remember this, right? Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, how often do I have to forgive this person who keeps offending me? 
And Jesus, he says, is it seven times? Jesus says, no, it's 70 times. And he tells him a story. Remember about this king who, you know, the servant owes him billions, trillions of dollars. No way he's ever going to pay it off. And out of his great mercy, he forgives him. But the guy goes out and he won't forgive somebody who owes him a few thousand dollars. Now, okay, Exodus 22 is showing us a picture of repentance. Exodus, let me explain this. And I, I, hope, I, hope, I, can, I hope you follow me here. So, so the parable of the wicked servant, of the unforgiving servant is told, if we can say it this way, from the standpoint of the one forgiving. We should have a willingness to forgive because we've been forgiven so much, Okay. But if, I, but if I look at Exodus 22, it's, it's, it's showing us what repentance should look like from the repenter, the one who's saying, I want to make this right. What does repentance look like? Jesus and John the Baptist will say it looks like bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, it's not a mere I'm sorry. For the repenter, it's saying, if this is real, you'll see a difference in my life. It'll be reflected. The fruit of my life will show that my repentance wasn't mere words. It's backed up by life change. And I think this is what's happening here. In fact, turn over. I want to show you something. Turn over to Luke chapter 19. And I think we have an example of this. And, and some of you know this story. Chap, chapter 19, verse 1. We run into Zacchaeus, who was apparently Irish because he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, the Lord he wanted to see. And the Lord passed by and Zacchaeus, you come down for I'm going to your house today. You all remember this song and the story? And the, and the religious leaders are outraged. How in the world can he invite Zacchaeus, this horrible sinner, and say, I'm going to go to your house and pollute myself and be around that? You, you know, Zacchaeus is a tax collector, which doesn't, don't think IRS agent. Think, think uh, organized crime. Think gangster, legalized gangsterism. Here's a guy who can take Roman thugs with him under the, under the protection of the law, pound on your door, say, pay up, sucker. You got to pay what you owe. And then he can look around and say, oh, no, by the way, today we're having a tax on bread. So you owe me this much more and start skimming and grafting. And there's all this deceit and, and stealing that he's doing. This is Zacchaeus. And people are upset and Jesus says, I'm going to your house. Now, boy, there's a ton in here. This is one of those like, when Jesus wants you, you'll never escape. I'm going to your house for a life-changing meal. And look what Zacchaeus says in verse eight. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, circle that fourfold. Let's think about this for a second. First of all, one half goes to the poor. The other half, I'm going to pay back everyone I've ever defrauded four times what I took from them. Where's he getting that from? Exodus 22. Exodus 22, if I've stolen and I'm discovered I pay back four times, five times. Here's what's interesting. And you can just write a note in your margin. Leviticus chapter six, I believe it's verses four through six. The law, um, there's an addition, an addendum you might say, added to this law that says, if a thief is caught, same thing, but if the thief 
if you will, comes to his senses and realizes, I've wronged somebody. I have to confess this crime. I, I'm going I'm to, you know, I, I've got to make this right. So if he does that of his own accord, then he has to pay back not four to five times uh, or, or even double if he still has the property. He, 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 he only pays back uh, uh, the, the amount he took plus 20%. So 120% versus four to 500%. Why does Zacchaeus go the harsher route? I think it's because Zacchaeus didn't out himself. Jesus outed Zacchaeus. He came and encountered the holiness of Christ. I mean, how gentle and kind of Jesus do this to show him his sin. He agreed and said, man, this is how bad my sin is. I've, I've sinned in this way and I have to pay back everything I've ever defrauded times four, times five. And look how Jesus responds in verse nine. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. How do you know? How do you know if somebody's saved? Because they said the sinner's prayer? Because they invited Jesus into their heart? Here's Jesus saying, man, I know this is real. Because here's a guy who is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Here's a guy who is probably going to bankrupt himself for the sake of Jesus. Do you get this? Half of my estate goes to the poor. And if Zacchaeus is being real here, then I'm going to repay four to five times. I will do everything I can to make it right. This is repentance. What is, listen to the Westminster Shorter Catechism define repentance for us. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God and endeavor after that to walk in obedience. That is such a great definition. It's a saving grace. It's not just I feel sorry. It's looking and saying, I now see a true sense. I see that I have defrauded. I see that it's an egregious sin, but I see the mercy of Christ. I see the mercy of God in that. And now I, I'm going by the grace of God to walk in obedience to God's commands. That's repentance. That's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance that leads uh, to life. See, this is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus looks and says, man, I, I, I have to do the right thing. Listen, and by the way, you can do the right thing without repenting. You can't repent without doing the right thing. Not possible. This is why I say this is genuine repentance. This is a heart that says, if I have caused any injury, any harm, either through intent or negligence, and I've not made it right, my heart is broken until I make it right. See, I, I just want you to see this is, repentance isn't an offer of cheap grace. It's not simply just say you're sorry and move on. It, it, it's life change. If there is no fruit from your repentance, then you shouldn't be surprised when people are suspicious and go, I'm not sure you've really repented. I'm not sure you're really sorrow, sorry for this. Okay, so it's not cheap grace, but hear me, it's also not 
the debtor's ethic. And let me explain this, what I mean. There are some of us that go, man, we look back on our lives before Christ and go, my gosh, I was, I was awful. I was horrible. I can't believe what Jesus saved me from. And now I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to pay him back. <laughs> Do you understand? That's the parable of the wicked servant. That's the one that says you have billions, trillions, quadrillions of mountains of debt you can never pay back. What kind of pride says I can live in such a way that I can pay Jesus back? You never can. That's a debtor's ethic. That's not what be, is being asked for. It's not cheap grace. It's not a debtor's ethic. It's a, true repentance is the difference between a true and false gospel. It's, it's, the, it's the difference between merely soothing our conscience and actually saving us. Right? A, a false gospel says, hey, just say you're sorry. Don't worry about it. and Keep living. The, the true gospel says, no, I want to walk in obedience. I want my life to change. I want to live out a new transformed life because you've actually changed me. This is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, listen, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But maybe since his entire life was one of graft and thievery, Zacchaeus may have lived out the rest of his life in poverty. He gave up everything because Jesus is better. Because Jesus is worth it. That's what's happening. That's real repentance. Repentance toward God. Repentance that we demonstrate. That, see, you understand what I'm saying when I say Exodus 22? This is like, let me show you that I'm really sorry for what I've done. Which leads me to the third thing. It's a, it's a path to reconciliation. Let me show you. Let me make this right. I don't want this to be between us anymore. I have harmed you. Somebody asked me after the first service, how do we know? Well, I, I think if I'm using Exodus 22, it's not, oh, I don't know. Have I offended somebody? It's like, I know I've offended somebody. I know that I've done something negligently or intentionally that has maybe harmed somebody even financially. And because of that, they have something against us. And so here's Exodus 22 saying, here's a way through. In fact, look at this. Go back to Exodus 22 and let me show you something. Look at verse um, 8. So here's where the thief is not found. The owner of the house shall come near to God, okay, to show whether he's telling the truth, okay? That's, I'm going to, let's just say it in plain terms. You go to the elders. You go to court. This is when you go to court. Skip down to verse uh, 9. Both parties shall come before God. Here's another place where you go to court. Um, look, look, at, look at verse 11. Uh, they take an oath by the Lord. So we could say maybe this is also one where I go to court. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is that notice those are three kind of where there's something ambiguous. Every other time, I think this is God. God didn't just say, here's the case law and Moses, just hand this out to those people who are gonna be judges of thousands of hundreds of tens. No, this is being spoken in the hearing of all the people. It's God saying, do you want to be reconciled with your neighbor when you know you've wronged them? Here's how. Here's a pathway forward. Here's how you make things right. In fact, look, let's go back to the New Testament. Go to Matthew chapter five. Here's Jesus in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and go to verse 21. This is amazing. I've actually never seen this this way. 
um, until this past week studying this. Look, look at verse 21. Okay, it's one of those, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He says, you've heard it said, those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Okay, so we're actually under commandment six right now. This is thou shalt not murder, okay? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. These are just strong words. Now, look at verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you. Now, now we've, we've sort of changed we were just talking about murder and now we're at the altar and I realize, that, let me put it together, I'm realizing my defrauding, my, uh, my neglect, something is causing an anger in my brother that Jesus says is like murder from him. So what do I do? I'm not feeling angry, I'm at church, I'm having fine. What do I do to reconcile with my brother? In fact, let me prove to you, this is I'm at fault. Look at verse 24. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come quickly and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're out, while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge of the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. There is a presumption that the one at the altar offering his gift to God is guilty of somehow stealing from his brother. Somehow, maybe through neglect of damage or something, he's got something against you and he's gonna take you to court. And if you can't pay it, you're going to prison. See, here's, here's Jesus saying, man, you go and do everything in your power to make it right. Be reconciled. But notice he doesn't just say be reconciled. Hey, just go say you're sorry. No, he says come to terms. Come to terms. I have to wonder if some of those terms are not spelled out for us in Exodus 22. Here's what I do to show I'm serious. I will pay you back. I will pay you back and then some. I'm gonna put you whole. I'm gonna make sure that this relationship is restored. How many relationships broken maybe by financial disagreement or, or damage or something like that or all kinds of things, how many of them could be restored simply by going and saying, I have harmed you, I know that, and I'm seeking your forgiveness. I had somebody tell me last week, about, uh, about a, a, a lawsuit where, where they, uh, somebody had embezzled, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars from them. And the guy who embezzled the funds came up to them and basically said, now you need to forgive me. That's not how this works, you understand? Should there be on my part a willingness to forgive an offense? Yes. But does that mean there needs to be no repentance? Even the wicked servant went back to jail when it saw that his repentance wasn't real. Here, here's, here's somebody saying, I demand that you forgive me. Where's the repentance? Where's your desire? Where do I see in you some kind of desire to make this right? A willingness to go, hey man, whatever this takes, I want to get right with you. I have hurt you. I have defrauded you. I have damaged you through my negligence. Something like that. I borrowed something and ruined it and I feel like it's come between us. What can I do to make this up? 
I want to come to terms in a way where you recognize I'm not just saying I'm sorry, hey, it was an accident, whatever. I'm coming to you and I want to make this right. Jesus says, listen, if you find yourself at the altar, I'm about to give my tithe. I'm here to offer worship and praise to God. And I think hey, I'm in church. I'm sort of the safe place. If you find yourself there and you realize that you've caused anger in your brother because you've offended them and you know this. This isn't like, uh, did I, did I not? You know this. Some of you know this. Man, I think Jesus in modern terms would say, walk out of the worship service, go get on the phone, go grab that guy, that gal, and say, I'm sorry, I sinned against you, and I want to make this right. I don't expect you to just take my I'm sorry for it. I want to do what I can do to help make this right. This is, this is what's going on. I think this is the picture we're getting here. This is the pathway. Jesus says, man, you go do that then. Then come and offer. What's he saying? Do you understand when I have that kind of problem with a brother or sister, and I recognize I'm at fault here, and I've done nothing to resolve it, J Jesus says, you haven't just damaged something along the horizontal plane. You've damaged this, this relationship. Go, make that right. It repairs, it'll repair this. Right? I'll, I'll hear you. I'll accept your sacrifice. I'll accept your offering. Uh, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper here in a moment. What are we doing? Like, like we usually quote out of 1 Corinthians 11. I dare you, just read 1 Corinthians 11 and see the context out of which Paul says what he says. Because it's, it's, a, it's a warning passage. Where Paul is basically saying, in this, I don't have any praise for you when you come to the Lord's Supper. Because essentially, he's writing to a church that's already divided and saying, when you come together, man, you don't even consider the divisions that are among you. You don't even care. See, here's what I'd say. If we come to the point of the Lord's Supper and you realize you have offended your brother, your sister, you know you're at fault. I'm not talking about, listen, and by the way, there could be mutual fault here. Okay, fine. But you make your part right. If you come to the Lord's Supper and the Lord is convicting you about making it right with someone, you say, no, I won't do it. Hear me, brothers and sisters. I mean this with all gentleness. Please don't take the Lord's Supper. Please just set it aside. Because Paul basically says this, some of you come in and you drink damnation and judgment. This is why some of you are sick, he says. This is why some of you die. Because you will not, you will not clear up the division of your own heart and realizing that, man, in this room with me are my brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe across town, that's my brother and sister in Christ. And I have refused to make things right. Did you see, when I say, when I tell you that, that the law tells us something about what God values, he values loving our neighbor. He values people in right relationship. He values when relationships are fractured through intentional or neglectful acts that we do things that demonstrate, I really want to do the right thing. I really want to make this right. Man, how much healing, how much healing could take place among the people of God, just us, if we just took that seriously. Jesus comes, right? And Jesus, his, 
He was, he was doing what? He was reconciling us to the Father, Paul says. And how? By flipping the script on us and not saying, I demand this from you, but like I'm going to pay your penalty. I'm going to go four to five times above. I'm going to go to the ultimate. I'm going to give my life. And all I ask in return, in order for you to receive of this, is real repentance. You turn from your sin and you turn in faith and trust Jesus Christ. And when that, when that's real, right? When that's a, that's a true repentance, when it's that saving grace that the Westminster Shorter Catechism talked about, Jesus will save you. He will save you. He will change you and you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance and you will be reconciled to God. And by the grace of God, we will be reconciled to one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, Lord, I, I just pray that as, um, God, as we think about this, Lord, maybe in this room right now, there are people that, that recognize they, they, have, they have been the cause of a rift in a relationship. They, they've caused property damage. They have swindled. They have, through neglect, lost something. Whatever it is, it may be property, it may not be. But Lord, I, I pray there would be a willingness, a desire to say, man, I gotta make things right. I, I have hurt somebody. And so Lord, I pray, give them the grace, the tenacity um, to go and do what you've called them to do and to be reconciled one with another, to come to terms in ways that demonstrate they really are serious about that. And God, I pray for people here today that don't even have a relationship with you, Jesus, because they've never repented. They've, they've never experienced that saving grace of saying, man, I see my sin for what it is. And like Zacchaeus going, man, I, I wanna turn from that decisively. I never wanna go back to that again. I don't even want the fruits of that sin around my life anymore. That God, there'd be that kind of turning that Lord, you would be able to say to them today, salvation has come to this house. Save people today, draw them, give them the saving grace of, your, of, of, of repentance through the power of your spirit that they might turn and put their faith in Jesus as their only hope to be reconciled to God. We love you, Lord, we thank you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.